Hey, good morning, church. If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn to Titus chapter 1. That's where we're going to be looking today. Um, This is our third week in the book of Titus. Before I get into the passage, I want to welcome you today, especially if you're a guest here with us. Um, We've prayed for you. We've prayed over this gathering that what would be examined here, that it would examine us that would be uh, not only hearers of the word, but doers of it, that would respond well to it. And so if you are new today, we'd love to know that you're here. You can do that by filling out the card in the seat back in front of you and then dropping it into the boxes that say give above them on your way out. Um, now, little precursor to Titus, um, some context that was given the last couple of weeks. There were these house churches that had been planted on the island of Crete. And Paul had left Titus there in order to set things in order, to put what remained in order. So that means that there was still this gap between what had already happened and what had yet to happen in the maturity of these churches. And he tells them, last week we covered this, that that he's to appoint leaders, not just any leaders, but qualified leaders. And then he gives this list of things that would help him to know and evaluate and say, these are the kind of people who need to be put in charge in the church, okay? So today is an extension of that. He doesn't just identify who should be in charge. He says, okay, and there's some other people, and they should not be left in charge, okay? Last week, I used the illustration of my daughter and someone asking for her hand in marriage, and the more valuable something is to you, the more strict you will be in how you give that kind of authority away. And there's nothing, absolutely nothing more valuable to Jesus Christ than the church. He's paid with his precious blood to ransom and to redeem the church. And so when we think about our church, we're thinking not just about the organization or the walls, we're thinking about the very people that Jesus Christ has died in order to save and to redeem. So as we come to this scripture today, we're asking the question, Lord, what is it that you would require of those who would lead in the church? But also, what are qualities and traits of those you would say, don't let them be in charge, okay? So as we ask those questions, let's read this passage starting in verse 10 of chapter 1. This is right after the qualifications of the elder. He says, these are all the things that they should be. And then right after that in verse 10, he says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. Since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit, for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. Say it with me. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would 
in these moments, instruct us, inform us. But don't just instruct us. I pray that by your Holy Spirit that you'd take the words of man and that you'd use them with power to transform us into a body of believers that more resemble what you have in mind with this great ransom. Pray that you'd help us to be watchful and attentive. Help these words to both evaluate us and to comfort us. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, uh, I just said that last week we focused on what qualified leaders look like. And the conclusion of this passage is there are some people that are being allowed to talk in, this church, in these churches that are not fit. Kind of like the moments when, uh, when my kids were younger, there was a few times when I got asked to coach their sports team, okay? Like soccer, I've never played soccer. It wasn't even a sport in my hometown. But for whatever reason, I found myself several years ago coaching an eight-year-old soccer team. And I did the best that I could. But at the end of the day, there were dads looking at me saying, you really don't know how to do this, do you? And I had to wholeheartedly agree and say, if you can help in any possible way, the spots were not filled, okay? And last week, we talked about what it looks like to be qualified in leadership. This week, very similar, just as important. The bottom line is very similar to last week, that God cares deeply about who's in charge, who has authority in his church, and he protects, this is the bottom line, God protects his church from deception, He's not indifferent to us being led astray. Even when we're naive, even when we're well-meaning, when we're led astray, God is not indifferent about it. He cares deeply about the directions that we're going and what we're believing, what we're taking in. So in three points, it's going to basically look like this. This is what we're going to see in the text. First, who are these false teachers? Then what are they teaching? Like, what is the false teaching? What's being led astray? And then we're going to evaluate what is Paul telling Titus is a faithful response to these kinds of things in that context. And hopefully, these things will inform us in our present context, okay? So in contrast to qualified leadership, um, he's saying this. Now, I want to go back to verse 9. Now, if you have your scripture open, you can look at the verse right before that. And he says the last qualification for an elder is that they have to know what the doctrine is. They have to be holding fast to the doctrine of the faith, the trustworthy word as taught. And he says this is true for a couple of reasons. Number one, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. And then the second piece of this This important qualification is that they would also be able to refute false doctrine. So part of the qualifications of being in leadership is that you have to know the truth well enough to say, this is what it is, and this is what it's not. So in uh, following that, we'll start in verse 10. I want to read it again. It says this, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, he's going to go through many things about their lifestyle, but it starts in verse 10. I want to kind of go through and say, what did these people's lives look like? Who are they that are misleading? Number one, they're insubordinate. They're unwilling to yield their lives to a kind of accountability and inspection whenever they came into the church. They were speaking authoritatively, but they weren't saying, hey, I'd like for you to also speak authoritatively into me. 
They were insubordinate. And here's what I want you to know. For everyone in the church, no matter what your calling is, whatever your gifting is, for every person in every role in the church, submission is for all of us, okay? Everybody thinks about submission like in the context of the home or in the church. But right before in Ephesians 6, where it says, wives, submit to your husbands, right before that it says, all of you submit to one another, okay? Part of the dynamics of the body of Christ is that we're yielding ourselves to the accountability, to the inspection of God's word as the ultimate authority, but also to one another. We would say, hey, speak into my lives. And so one of the traits of these disqualified leaders is that they were insubordinate. They were saying, I do not want to be inspected. I do not want to be held accountable. Second thing that uses to talk about these, uh, these false teachers is that they were empty talkers. Lots and lots of words with very few actions. God be merciful to me. Our words are many, so many times. And our deeds are few. The person who wants to go on a mission trip but hasn't been part of God's mission in this place or in this city for years. Lots of feedback for the church without a helpful contribution to the church. But empty talkers. Next thing it uses to describe them are deceivers. They have a good front of holiness, but in reality, they're more broken than they would admit or allow other people to see. They'd rather pretend that they have it together than to confess their sins. They'd rather offer advice when someone confesses rather than saying, yeah, me too. They're deceivers. Look at verse 12. Describes them this way. Now, he doesn't go out and say, you guys are lazy deceivers. You're liars. He says some of those things, and he says, let me use one of your own guys, okay? He quotes uh, Epimedes, I'm sorry, (laughs) a well-known, highly esteemed uh, Cretan philosopher he quotes in this moment. Verse 12, he says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then he goes on in verse 13 to say, basically true, okay? That's what they're like. Now, can you imagine someone showing up in the church and saying, I've heard about Jackson. I've heard about Jackson. Look at all of you and say, it's basically true. That's what he's doing. It's really strong words for the church. It says they're liars, evil brutes, they're violent, they're lazy, glutton, and Paul's essentially agreeing with the people in their own context that would assess them that way. In fact, they, there was a, in the Greek world, they would use this verb to cretize, which meant like to just lie and deceive people, to cheat them out of something. That's what this island was known for. And basically, Paul's saying they kind of deserve to be known. The stereotype fits, right? Heavy. And then we find out that not only is this how he would describe them, but we find out their motivation in verse 11. What motivates them? It says they must be silent since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. In other words, the reason that they're doing it is so that they might gain something. They're not just deceived. They're deceiving others in order that they might get something out of it. Now, in our collected history of everyone in this room, if everybody were to tell the stories of the men and women in their lives that have been in the church, you probably have some stories like this, 
where someone took on some role of leadership and they did it so that they could get something out of it, not so that they could give something that they had received from Christ. And I just want to remind you that in whatever ways that you've been hurt, I said this last week, God cares so much more about his church than you even do. He cares about you. And he's deeply concerned with who's leading in the church for that reason. These teachers shouldn't have been teaching because their lives didn't line up. It was out of step. And throughout the book of Titus, he's saying, hey, the people in Crete need to hear that your lives have to be in step with the doctrine that you're holding on to. Now, I want to go from who they are to what's their message, because I think there's lots of ways that we might see similar things in our culture. What is it that they're teaching, okay? And he calls them out in a few ways. First of all, he says, especially the circumcision party. This is part of what Paul is addressing in Romans and Galatians, here in Titus, and in Acts. We find out the story of this group of Pharisees. They were like, hey, we need to make sure that these new people to the faith take on at least some of our customs, They need to take them on. And it was upsetting not only families, it was upsetting the whole new church. Peter's upset that there's this group within the Pharisees that are rising up saying it's not by grace alone. You need some actual cultural things too, one of them being circumcision. This had been a sign of God's promise to them that through their seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That's why circumcision was so important to God's people because there was a promise attached to it. Now, this promise has been fulfilled, but culturally, there's Jews attached to the practice more than they were to the promise. And they came into the church and upset people. Now, I'm going to put a few verses on the screen that it uh, explains what's going on with the circumcision party, okay? Stick with me, okay? There's some application coming. It's going to mean something in a moment. First, he says this in Acts chapter 15. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, we haven't been able to bear under the demands of the law. Verse 11, but we believe, this is what we believe, that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. In other words, the same way that anybody is a true son of Abraham is by faith, not by something that you could put on externally or do to yourself or avoid or pursue. It's by faith and something that God has done and only he could do for you. Now, they send out this letter to all the churches from the council in Jerusalem at the conclusion of this big argument. And they said, okay, we really need to put this circumcision party to rest. They're upsetting everybody. And they conclude that there's about three things they have to adhere to from the Jewish culture. Number one, abstain from food that was been sacrificed to idols. It's on the screen, sorry. Verse 29, abstain, this, this, no other burden but this, okay? No extra burden except for this, that you abstain from food that's been sacrificed to idols, and from blood and from what was been strangled, and, that you, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you'll do well. Farewell. The end. Signing off. Now, even though they had sent this letter out to everyone, this false teaching still existed. And here's why. There's, there's this great and tricky appeal to legalism. Here's what it is. Why is it so appealing? Well, it, it resembles at times sanctification. It might look like you actually are getting your life to look more like Jesus by doing some external thing. 
But if you avoid sins and pursue virtues and the things that you should avoid or pursue becomes your assurance rather than what Christ has done for you, it doesn't actually raise the bar of holiness, but it lowers the bar to something that you actually can feel like you've attained. It's dangerous. Rather than seeing all of life as belonging to God and Him being the only one that can continually cleanse you and sanctify you and help you to deny yourself and your flesh and pursue godliness, you see something that you can attain and then put it behind you like one of the steps. Now, if you believe that you can put God's requirement for you behind you, as if you've walked away from what He requires you will also walk away from the living God. And eventually, you end up living not more like Him, but you begin to not resemble Him at all. The evidence of God's work in any person's life is not some external shift away. It's not just some external shift away from vices and towards virtue. It's not less than that, but it is much, much more than that. It's so much more than that. It's daily walking in His light with His life. The Spirit working in and through us so that we'd be growing to more and more resemble Him and more and more look like the life that He's designed for us. So if you think holiness can be something that you check off and say, I've already adhered to that, I've denied that, and move forward, there's a possibility that you've bought into this kind of false teaching. And it's dangerous. The result of their teaching is that it was divisive. Here's the thing. If you become a legalist, you're going to constantly be evaluating how you're doing, not based on God's holiness, but on everyone around you. You'll say, I'm doing good compared to someone. And it just divides families. It divides churches you'll begin to say, I'm doing better than, I'm doing worse than. And it's all looking around you in the peripheral rather than looking to God and His holiness. And it's divisive. Look at verse 11 again. They must be silenced. Why? Because they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game. That's their motivation. What they ought not to teach. It's upsetting. It's divisive. It was pulling the people apart because they thought that they could actually do something to make themselves pleasing to God. There's a form of godliness, but, it, but God seems to be absent from the pursuit. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says that in the last days there are going to be people who are lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartily unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And what does he say about them? Look at verse 5. Now this doesn't seem to make sense. That long list looks like, man, they're a mess, right? But for some reason, he says, they're going to have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. They have an appearance, but they don't really believe the Spirit has power to change them from the inside out. And what Titus is telling us, or what Paul is telling Titus and then to us, is that if you're in leadership in the church, part of the responsibility is not just to avoid and to ignore such people. How should we respond to these kinds of people? He's going to give a list of things in this passage 
that would be a faithful response to someone who's divisive or misleading within the church. Number one, look at verse 11 again. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. Number one, they don't need to be given a place of leadership, okay? They have to be in alignment with the doctrine of the church in order to be telling people what the church is and who God is. They should be silenced. The, the word here means like literally muzzled. Don't let them talk anymore. One of the things in our cultural statement that we, our staff goes over, like what are our cultural values every single week? And at the beginning of the, the document, we, we visit this probably once every two months, this statement. We cannot deny with our actions what we declare with our message. We don't want anyone in a role of authority in this church that would deny with their actions what we're declaring about the gospel. That's really important. So for us, how do we apply this? Don't go to a church where someone's preaching a form of godliness, but they have no power. Within the church, we, we cannot give heed to people who are not living in a submissive way to the Scriptures, to God's authority through the Scriptures. There's things that resemble in this list the life of any church leadership, and there's ways that we have to avoid such people. Now, this also can apply to you individually. Some of you need to silence what you're listening to. If you're listening to a teacher that's not submissive to any local church authority, let's delete that podcast from your subscription list, okay? I no longer want to see this on TikTok, Instagram. Just because someone has influence doesn't mean that they have spiritual authority. Spiritual authority comes when we're aligned with God's word, not because we have some people following us. Uh, so, first response. What's a faithful response? They must be silenced. There's a lot of teaching available right now. Do you guys know that there's never been more digital access to people telling you things about God in the history of the planet? There's tons of voices, and a lot of them need to be silenced. There's voices that would tell us to be outraged because outrage is what sells. There's voices that would tell us to be delighted about something at someone's courage when actually they're rebellious towards God. All of these voices that go against God's word, his final authority, we should silence those voices. But that's not the end. Look at verse 13. Okay. How else should we reply faithfully? This testimony is true. Now, he's talking about the uh, Cretan philosopher. Epimedes. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Two pieces of this. Number one, rebuke them. What should we do? We should tell them to stop it, not just silence them, but say, hey, you're wrong, okay? This requires courage of anyone to say, hey, I'm going to step into your life in a way that will probably cause you to reject me forever. But if you believe something that's wrong, I hope that I'll care enough to do it. That's what the church of Jesus Christ should look like. Caring enough to step closer when we hear someone that's being led astray and saying, this isn't right. Now, we rebuke them as if lives are in danger. Okay? He says to rebuke them sharply. Now, I know it's really important that we're also kind. 
They're also loving, that we know that we've heard from God about the rebuke. Like we're not just a loose cannon shooting off saying, hey, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Some people need to remain in this cage stage, okay? Like be caged for a while, mature up, then grow into the... If you just love rebuke, this is not for you. This is for the people that know the truth and they're bashful about telling the truth to someone else. Rebuke them sharply. This means that there's, there's a way in which you have to rebuke them as if there's a sense of urgency. There's a difference in your voice. Just imagine this with me. You're telling your kids, go on a bike ride. I want you to be careful, okay? There's a difference in how you say be careful uh, in that scenario rather than when they're about to come into oncoming traffic. You say, wait a minute. There's a way in which God is saying, hey, we have to rebuke people sharply because there's things that are at stake that are very dangerous. The church is and should be the place where we care enough about one another that we speak these kinds of things with a sense of urgency. Now, we all like to be self-corrected. Like, we like to learn our lessons. Right? You talk to someone and be like, man, I really learned my lesson there. Um, but we don't like it quite as much when someone helps us learn our lesson there. We need to be the kind of people who not only give this, but can receive this kind of authority in our lives. Where we say, hey, I'm not just an autonomous Christian. I belong to a people that belong to God. And we take responsibility for one another in this way. So silence, rebuke, and then look at the last piece of verse 13 again. Why do we do this? It's with the hope of restoration that they may be sound in the faith. We're not doing it so that they will just walk away. So if you think that you have some call to, to sharply rebuke people so they'll get out of your hair, that's not the call of this text. The call is that, that we would tell them these things so that they might be sound. A lot of people could be corrected and be so effective within the, the body of Christ. We seek restoration because there's always hope that every faithful rebuke would not only lead to silence, but it would lead to ultimately correction so that we would devote ourselves no longer to the things that are false, but to the truth. So if Titus is able to correct this false teaching, what's going to happen? Look at verse 14. They're no longer going to devote themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Two pieces of the puzzle. This is what full repentance and restoration will look like. Number one, there are myths that are being spread around, okay? Now, anybody who has a low view or low vision of God and the mystery and awe and reverence and wonder of who He is, they're going to fill that gap of wonder with mysterious things. I really believe this is why flat earthers exist, QAnon. People are desperate for some type of myth that feels mysterious, and what they're missing out on is the mystery of an eternal God who's always existed, who's inviting them to know Him. Now, if you don't see God as this high and ultimately powerful uh, figure who reigns over all of creation as mysterious and majestic, if you do this, you're going to reach for myths. And there is no shortage of myth. Prophecies, speculations, instead of the solid truth of who he's revealed himself to be. This is what they would turn away from. Jewish myths, and then secondly, commands that people that are walking away from the truth have given. Lots of folks, people, people want to give advice for the church. A lot of people who want to have advice for the church don't actually belong to the church. They just have a lot of advice for the church. 
They have a lot of things where they're saying, hey, we really think the church should behave this way. Okay? He's saying part of what they would return to and turn away from is listening to commands from people who don't actually hold to the truth. There's one who commands us, who's Lord over all. It's Jesus Christ, our King. And then the last piece of this faithful response is he clearly defines their hypocrisy. He doesn't like leave it to mystery. Verses 15 and 16, he says, I want to I lay it out for you. This is hypocritical. Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In other words, if you're, pure, if you're pure by faith in God's provision of Christ's righteousness, all things are pure. You don't need to add something to what God has done or done for us. But to the unbelieving, they're constantly trying to add something to or take something away that would make them feel justified before a holy God. To the defiled and unbelieving, those who do not believe, there's nothing that they can ever do to make themselves feel pure before God. C.S. Lewis uh, said this, of all men, religious bad men are the worst. Amen? Of all the bad, religious bad men are the worst. Ironically, those who trust in their works actually are unfit. Look at verse 16. They're unfit. It's going to be on the screen for this. They profess to know God. They deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Now, Jesus was regularly calling out hypocrites, okay? And if anyone is, is honest before God's throne, we know that there's like discrepancies between what we want to be and what we actually are. But that's part of what it means to bring ourselves before the Father. Jesus was regularly saying, you guys are hypocrites, he didn't, like, shy away from those terms. In fact, there was a group of uh, his disciples, they were eating, and they didn't wash their hands. And there were people washing, watching them, and they're saying, why do your disciples not wash their hands? They should wash their hands. The priests, everybody who's in spiritual authority, they wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus looks at them in, in Matthew 15, and he says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, he called it out. Paul calls it out here and he says, look, there's people giving you commands that they've made up and made them as if they're, the, they're doctrines that come from God. And the people that are doing that are hypocrites. Many people ignore the greatest commandment to love God and love others so that they can serve some lesser commandments so that everyone might see. And ultimately, this is true of them. Again, in verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Their profession is this, I know God. Their actions say, I've never met Him. Two different things. Now, before I move into application, I want to just take a moment as a teacher and someone who feels responsible for our, as part of our elder team, we feel responsible for our congregation. And I want to name a couple of false teachings that I believe are prevalent here in the South. The first one is this. God requires something of you, but not everything. 
something, not everything. There's a lot of people who have an outward form of godliness without power because they believe that God has required something of them that they've already done. I'm going to fill in the blank for you. Maybe it's walking the aisle. Maybe it's making a decision. Maybe it's getting baptized. When someone says, why do you believe that you belong to Christ? What's the first thing that comes into your mind? If it's anything that at the end of the day you can say, I did that, then you're putting your hope in something that will fail you. False teaching is this. The first one is this. God requires something of you, but not everything. If you believe this, you're always going to be anxious and toiling. You can never rest. But if you believe that God has, has required everything of you, and you bring your life to him, then you actually can experience Sabbath rest. That he's made the ultimate provision, which goes into the second false teaching I just want to name today. It's this. Jesus gives me some things, but he's not everything. I think one of the most dangerous, uh, dangerous beliefs in the cultural Bible Belt South is that Jesus is something that's part of my life, but he's not everything to me. He's something that fits into some corners of my life, but he's not ultimate to me. He gives me some good gifts. But it doesn't matter if I walk with him. And to these things, I say, hey, the faithful response, if there's anything telling you these things, silence it, rebuke it, correct it. Hope that those who would be telling you things would be restored. But do not walk in this falsehood. Either Jesus is everything or he's nothing. He's either your everything or he's nothing. He's not going to be like your side gig. He's not just someone who you can appease and put behind you as if you've walked those steps and now you're good with God. He demands your whole life. Everything. I think one of the results of those uh, false teachings and false beliefs in our culture is that people believe that their lives don't have to change when they profess to know God. If you actually know God, he changes everything. He never lies dormant in your life. The Spirit doesn't like sit asleeping in your life. J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness, said it this way. The Spirit never lies dormant and idle within the soul. He always makes his presence known by the fruit he causes to be born in the heart, character, and life. He goes on to say it's nonsense to suppose that we have the Spirit if we're not walking in the Spirit. So I want to ask this question, and I think it's a really heavy question, but I think it's one of the most important questions we could ask in the South. Does your life align with your profession of knowing God? Now, I'm not talking about the God that you've made in your mind. I'm talking about the God of the Scriptures. Does your life resemble the profession that he's my only hope. The God of the Bible, do you know him? Have you experienced him? Do not settle for myths about him. Don't settle for myths and commands that you've kept. One of the most wonderful things that God could give to us today is that people would come to the end of their delusion and realize they'd never met him. 
Do you know things about him or do you know him? If you know him, he requires something more than just doing some things for him. He says, give me your life. His invitation is one to come and die. This is one of the most sobering scriptures. And and, uh, several weeks ago, we were in our new members class and someone asked a question about salvation. Is Is it forever or can people lose their salvation? And one of our elders, Doc, quoted this scripture. I thought it was so poignant for that moment. And I think it's poignant for this moment. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then he will declare to them, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's really sobering when he lists the evidence there as being like casting out demons, prophesying in his name. Like these people apparently knew the future in the name of Jesus. They were declaring true things in moments. They were doing mighty works. And at the end of their life, there's some moment where it comes that's more true than all the things that they had put on. It's a really, it's an important question for us. And, and I sit under that question too, okay? Uh, there's this really godly man, a friend of a father, uh, uh, one of my friend's father who was diagnosed with cancer, terminal cancer last week. And we're talking, um, I mean, he's a godly man, a righteous man. And he's like facing death in the face in this moment. And uh, in a conversation, he says, I really tremble with this reality. This is the kind of man that if you met, you'd be like, obviously he's a Christian. Mighty deeds, strong guy. Like he just follows Jesus. He led his family well. He's raised up believing children. But anytime things like this get presented to us, there's a way in which we have to let it evaluate us in order for the gospel to actually bring comfort. Because if we don't, we're going to keep holding this at arm's length. And so we should let this question evaluate us. We don't come to the scriptures to evaluate it. We come so that it will evaluate us. And we should ask the question, hey, does my life align with this kind of profession of knowing God? Do I know him in such a way that my works don't deny him? That's, that's the most important question. And then for those in this room where you're like, no, I know him. I love him. I hate sin. I love righteousness. I'm, I'm growing in that every day. I want to encourage you, because this is ultimately what this passage is about, to be watchful, to be wise. Uh, Paul in Romans, he's, he's talked about all these people, because I mean, every, every single letter, he's like, hey, watch out for those false teachers. They're here to lead you astray, let you be convinced of something that's not true. And he ends the letter of Romans with this command in chapter 16. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. Now, Titus, he says, rebuke them sharply. Here, he's like, just ignore them. Avoid them. People are like, some of you are like, I can do that much better. Okay, I'll I'll just avoid those people. He says, look, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the hearts of the naive. 
For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent and to what is evil. He's saying, I want you to watch out. I want you to be wise because there, you guys have an enemy. They all know that we have an enemy as a church. It's shared. So when you look around at each other, we have a common enemy. Now, I don't know whether or not we have a common Savior. I hope that we do. But I know this for sure, that every person in this room has a common enemy. And here's the promise for those that belong to Christ, that as we're watchful, as we're wise, as we're watching out and we're pivoting and aware of what's going on in culture, we're aware of what's happening with our kids, with our wives, with our spouse. We have to be wise and gentle, okay? Both of those things. Leaders of this church, if you're in this room and you're a leader in any way, I'm not just talking to elders, deacons, anybody who leads a team, we must be watchful because we have a shared enemy and he's more subtle than we would think. We need to be students of what a healthy church is according to God's word, not just according to what we believe we could do. Because I don't want us to deny with our actions what we declare with our message. So leaders, be watchful, be wise. Individuals, that means everybody in the room. (laughs) Everybody, know what you believe so that you can recognize what you don't when you hear it. Study God's word. Allow God's word to study you. Listen, this is just a... uh, plug for a great resource you can put on your phone, the New City Catechism. It's a great catechism. Ask questions every week of the year, and it says, hey, what do we believe about this? And it has an answer with scriptures and and songs. uh, Several years ago, I went through that with our kids at Seasons, and it was really great. I really love that. So as individuals, sure up that you know what you actually believe so that you can recognize what you don't when you hear it. Husbands and fathers in this room, Watch out for your family, for your little parish, your little congregation, your wife, your kids. Guard the messages that they hear because there's going to be a lot of messages that would lead them astray. Mothers and sisters, watch out for your husbands and your children, your brothers and your sister. Be watchful, be vigilant, be wise. Know when to avoid people, know when to silence and rebuke and restore them and let them know that there's no audience with you when they try to lead you astray. And then lastly... Here's the really good news about those that are just watchful and wise and you feel paranoid that you're going to get it wrong. The last verse in this paragraph from Paul to Romans is this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. There's a day coming where you don't have to be on the defense all the time. Our enemy will be settled forever. Let that fill your mind and heart with hope today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and help us to listen to it. Help us to study it so that it might study us. I pray that today as we come to communion that you would help us to receive this good gift. That you've paid the penalty. You've, you're everything. You're not something that we could add to our life. You're our only hope. You're not one of our hopes. Help us to walk away from this both challenged and renewed. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.